Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of January 5th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. Enduring this world, you and I both know that even as we begin a new year, the news is already full of things that are difficult and the things that are hard. And as hard as those things, as hard as the news and things like that might be, the truth is for many of us, it's the personal difficulties that are really the most pressing. There was a movie that came out, on a lighter note, there was a movie that came out uh, many years ago called The Princess Bride. Some of you may be familiar with this, probably one of the more quotable movies of all time. And in that movie, there is a, a, a word that gets bandied about and used a lot. It's the word inconceivable. And in the middle of this movie, this, this one guy keeps using the word over and over and over again. At some point, the, one of the guys says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. When we come to this issue of enduring this world, this idea of suffering, the idea of pain, the idea of hurt, I think we must realize that sometimes it doesn't mean what we think it means. For most of us, we come to this idea of enduring difficulty, of enduring suffering, enduring hardship, dealing with loss. It brings to our mind lots of questions. And the truth is, myself included, we would rather avoid that, wouldn't we? And we have in our minds some things that we think this means. Why did God do this to me? What did I do wrong? What mistakes did I make? Who caused this to happen? We look for things, we look for reasons, we look for explanations, and it never occurs to us that the meaning of what we're in doing might be completely different than what we think it is. Sometimes it doesn't mean what we think it means. We need to begin, I think, to start looking at reframing our understanding of what it means to endure suffering. So over these next five weeks, our goal will be to to look at what the Bible has to say about suffering and evil and violence, sickness, personal pain and loss. Sometimes these things defy explanation as far as we know. They leave us without words. Sometimes it brings us to the point of not knowing what to say. Sometimes we rage. Sometimes we rant. Sometimes we yell. Sometimes we question. We want to know why. We want to know how. We want answers, don't we? And if you're like me, you want a way to be able to fix it. And sometimes the explanations we think we need just aren't coming. They sometimes leave us with more questions than we started with. We run away. We fight against the pain. We seek to overcome it. We want to make it go away at all costs. And by the way, as we deal with these tragedies, as we deal with personal grief and pain, we aren't the first ones to ask these questions. In Psalms, Psalm 69, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched, my eyes fail looking for God. Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself? in times of trouble. Psalm 6, I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. It may be that you've said something exactly along those lines yourself. Maybe you've even quoted one of those psalms or one of the many that are like them. We're going to look at these struggles that we endure through the eyes of Scripture. The fact is God deals and talks a great deal about this to, it, about this to us. And we see it in the lives of almost every single character in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I dare say you can't find a one from Adam to the Apostle John who didn't go through a great deal of suffering. Men like Joseph and Isaiah and Peter and Paul 
all went through a great deal of it. And the truth is, even our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, went through a suffering that none of us can really, truly understand. I believe that this book in front of us and our God who wrote it deals with and engages and it goes head on with the idea of sin and suffering in a way that no other religion or faith or philosophy does or even can. As we come to this study over these next five weeks, we will not talk about every possible suffering situation. We will not cover every possible scenario, and I will not be able to answer every one of your questions. Even if we had 50 weeks, that wouldn't be possible. But I do hope and pray that over the next several weeks, we do come out with at least an idea of what God has said about what we have to endure. Let me also add, there are truth is that many of you in this room this morning have already experienced more pain and more suffering than I will understand. I do not approach this topic this morning lightly. I don't want to be cliche. I don't want to be flippant. I want to be careful. Because more than anything else, we are on a path, whether we are enduring suffering or pain or whatever the situation may be, that leads us I believe, to the author of life. God's Word speaks about suffering throughout Scripture with terms like thankfulness and joy and even the word privilege. <laughs> and my guess is those are not the words that we tend to think of when we think of the word suffering. It's more than just a part of discipleship. It's, suffering is more than something that just brings us to uh, perhaps a more Christ-like character. It does something more than just simply produce endurance. I believe that suffering itself may well, in fact, at times, be an act of God's grace. Now, I know that just may make some of you go, I don't get that. And I'd be lying if I said if I understood it completely myself. Elizabeth Elliott, some of you may know who she is. Her and her husband, Jim, were missionaries in South America uh, several decades ago. Jim, her husband, along with four others, were killed by members of the Walrani tribe as they endeavored to take the gospel to this tribe. Elizabeth Elliott has been used of God a great many ways over the past several decades, and she has a, a book out called Suffering is Never for Nothing, and in it she defines suffering this way. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. If we think about that for a moment, we, we can see how that might look. It's the loss or being deprived of something that we, we particularly want. Maybe something that's very, very good. It may be a person. It may be a situation. It may be health. But there's something that we desperately want that we don't have, we're deprived of. Or maybe it's something that we don't want. Maybe it is disease or death or abuse. But there's something in our lives that we don't want. And so whatever shape or form it may take, this is an idea of suffering that we're going to work with. And the truth is, to some extent, we've all dealt with this. We all have experienced things in our lives that we wish weren't there. And we all have things that we wish were. And whatever that may look like, whatever the individual circumstances may have been for you or what they are even this morning, and they're different for each and every one of us, we know what it means to endure something we don't want or to not have something that we do want. So let's begin to introduce ourselves this morning to some foundational ideas in Scripture. And we're going to start with probably the most obvious place to start. We're going to start in the book of Job. So if you would take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Job. We're going to be in verse or chapter 1. And I'm going to uh, begin right there in verse 1 and then skip around a little bit. We are going to be doing a little Scripture hopping in Job this morning as well as being a couple of different other spots. But Job chapter 1, let's simply introduce ourselves to this man. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 
500 female donkeys and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the, of the east. So we just begin there by looking at who Job was. Now, move, move on down to verse 6 of chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord, I from roaming around the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is yours, is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we begin our time together this morning, I pray that you would take us on a journey today that may not answer our questions or may not do all that we want it to do, but Lord, would lead us directly to you. For Lord, above all this year and above all this morning, our desire is to see you. Lord, would you please draw us to yourself today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin this study, the first thing we see about Job, before we even get to who he is, and, and this, this story, this chapter, uh, can bring about a lot of questions to our mind, not the, first, not the least of which is what is going on in this conversation and these sons of God and why is Satan and God's presence having a conversation, and we don't have time to get into all this. But we do see something, and that is this. There is a spiritual existence, a kingdom where God exists and God lives that you and I, as of right now, with our fleshly eyes, do not see. There is another kingdom, if you will. There is the kingdom of this world, and we by that are talking about the, the world that you and I see, the world that is filled with the people walking around it and the buildings and the roads and the streets and the politics and all, all the trials and all the schedules that you and I will probably get back into a routine of tomorrow as school starts back up and all that stuff. It's the world that you and I are the most familiar with, the kingdom of this world, the Bible calls it, but there's also the kingdom of heaven. And it's a spiritual world that as of yet, while it's real, and it's in many ways perhaps more real than the world you and I are familiar with, it's a world that you and I don't see with our physical eyes, that we don't touch with our hands. When Jesus was before Pilate on trial, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So there is a reality, there is an existence, there is a kingdom that you and I as a, as a matter of practice on a daily basis do not see. And the reason that's important is this. All the things that are about to happen to Job, all that's going to take place in these next 40-something chapters are the result of a conversation, the result of a, of a condition that takes place in a realm that Job never sees. And as far as we know, Job never understands even took place. It's a, it's a realm where God is operating. And what is happening to Job on this world is the result of something that takes place in a world that Job never sees. Now for you and I, we need to understand something, that much of what we may endure in this life may have nothing to do with this life. It may be the result of something that's happening in a kingdom in our spiritual existence that we don't see yet and we won't see and understand or perceive in any way as long as we're walking on this earth. There is an eternal existence that you and I are destined for for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And we are being prepared for that and that reality is shaping things that take place here. But we may never see them. And we'll find out that through all the 40-something chapters of Job, God never tells him why it's happening. He never tells him, I had this conversation, Job. He never tells Job anything. And Job never sees it. And so we need to understand that there is a, a world that is not visible to us as of yet. But that in that world, as this one, God is still sovereign. He is still in charge, and He is still king. And that while this world in its current state may not be God's, God's ultimate kingdom, 
that's coming, that's still yet to come, that God is still in charge. God is still sovereign, and this is the truth. Now, that may or may not make you feel better. I don't know. Now, let me pause here just briefly and say this. Understanding this truth, believing that there is a life to come for us and that there is a kingdom we don't yet see, is a vital thing. I saw this week when all the New Year's stuff and all the, all the things that got posted all the Happy New Year's, I, I saw one person, I think well-intentioned, and I saw the post and it read this, you don't change the world with beliefs, you change them with actions. Now I get that, I understand that, I, I think I know what they were intending to say. But the thing is, our beliefs always determine our actions. There are no actions without beliefs first. What you and I do on a daily basis is always, not sometimes, it's always determined by what we believe. Now what happens is a lot of times we say we believe one thing, but we do something else. So all that really does is tell us that we don't really believe what we say we believe. Our true beliefs always shape our actions. If you believe that God has an eternal existence for us and a life waiting for those who have faith in Christ, that will, not might, it will determine your response to every circumstance, whether it be for comfort or whether it be for difficulty. So I want to begin there. We, we see there's a world here in Job 1 that Job never sees, and the truth is the same, it's the same for us this morning. Now, as we move forward to that, now let's go back and look at Job himself. Because one of the things that comes up with the idea of suffering or the idea of, of pain is that somehow we're victims or somehow we've done something that has earned or deserved this. I, I made a mistake and so I'm reaping the consequences or someone else made a mistake or whatever the case is, there's a disease, there's a consequence and we're looking for something or someone to blame. There's, there's a problem somewhere. But understand that when we get to the story of Job, that's not the case. Now, I don't mean to indicate that Job is sinless. He is he is a sinful human being just the way you and I are. But Job is not suffering and not going to go through all that he goes through because he made a mistake. He's not some Greek tragic figure that has a fatal character flaw. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If we go back and read Job chapter 1 again, we would find out that the reason Job is about to endure all that he endures is because he's righteous. Now that just probably is opposite of what we might expect. But Job is going to suffer not in spite of his sin, he's, or in spite of his righteousness, he's going to suffer because he is righteous. Job chapter 1, verse 1 said he's blameless, upright, fearing God. He's also wealthy, he's respected, he's powerful. But you can't be jealous of him because he's such a good guy. You ever met those guys that seem to have it all and you really want to be mad at them and jealous of them because they got it all, but you can't because they're such a nice perfect person? That's who Job is. And not only is he all this, he's a good parent. Look at verse 5. I skipped it a while ago, but look at verse 5. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, that's his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Know what Job's doing? Job is praying for his kids. He's a good parent. He's trying to raise them right. So he's wealthy, he's respected, he's righteous, upright, he's a good parent, he's praying for his kids. Not only that, he, uh, he's, he's got good friends. Now, now we're going we're gonna to bang on Job's friends here in a little bit. I get it, because they, they give him some bad advice. But I want you to see something else here. If we go to later in this chapter, we would find that his friends actually uh, uh, mean well. Actually, I, I say... Chapter, look at chapter 2, actually. Um, chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends heard of all this adversity they had, that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each one of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw his pain was great. I want us to know something. We're going we're to criticize some things these guys say, but 
But these guys were so loving of Job that they sat down for seven days and nights and they were just there. That's a good friend. That's somebody who cares about you. These men cared about Job. They were faithful friends as far as they knew. He's got good friends. So Job is not suffering because of bad choices and friends. He's not suffering because of something he did. He's not suffering for some, for some mistake. He's suffering because God loves him and has held him up as a beacon of righteousness. That's why Job is suffering. And he's doing it because there's something going on in the world he will never see, that he will never understand. All these things are taking place. Now, if we fail to understand that Job is a righteous, blameless man in many ways, and that there's a world going on he doesn't see, if we miss those two things, we're going to miss much of what we need to understand. We're going to miss so much of what takes place in the next few weeks. There's no tragic experience about what Job, that Job did to cause all this thing. The truth is, enduring the things that Job will endure are going to be, by the end of this book, seen as a gift from God. So grace, a gracious gift, is what we will see the Bible portrays as Job's suffering. It may not mean what you think it means. It may well be that God will use suffering in our lives to be an act of grace. So I want to briefly go through, we are trying to cover a lot of territory this morning, I'm not denying that. I want to take us through a handful of things, reactions or actions to our pain that may expose what we truly believe about who God is and what we believe about suffering. Remember, what we believe always shapes our actions, so these are some of the actions that will expose what we truly believe about suffering. So sometimes when we suffer, sometimes when we're experiencing difficulty, sometimes when we're experiencing hardship, loss, whatever it might be, whatever the circumstance might be, sometimes one of our reactions might be this one. Now I have to admit that what I'm about to tell you is probably my default position. It's the idea of grin and bear it. You ever heard this one? You ever heard this phrase of, man, just deal with it. Just put your head down and plow through. Don't show weakness. Just hang in there. When you come to the end of your rope, do what? Make a knot and hang on, right? That's the idea here. Just grin and bear it. Pretend everything's okay. By the way, sometimes churches have trouble with this. Sometimes churches are a place where instead of sharing and strengthening one another, we come and Everybody pretends it's okay, and we go, well, I can't share my problems here because everyone else is fine. That's not the case. This should actually be the last place that takes place, but I, I know that's not always the case. Again, I'm guilty of this one too, by the way. I think a lot of guys are. Don't want to admit weakness or that we're hurt. Uh, there's a, a Bible study on this topic on Job from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and I just want to read this quote from this Bible study on suffering and on particular this idea of grinning and bearing it. To grin and bear it, it says that in a time of great difficulty, I'm going to move forward under my own power, as if God did not exist. I'm going to tell people, I'm okay, because I'm not the kind of person to ask for help. My strategy is all about what I'm going to do. And in doing that, I become a practical atheist. To take a really, just, just to take a, a, a normal example here, because I do this. I don't like to ask for directions when I'm driving. I don't even, I, I, I've broken down and used it, I don't even like using the GPS. Because I don't trust it. Because I know what I'm doing. And I know where I'm going. <laughs> I didn't think I was the only one. <laughs> now, sometimes we do the same thing in life. I'm going to continue this quote. There's something about asking for help that's humbling. 
And ever since Adam and Eve gave into the temptation that they could be better off if they were independent of God, ever since then, humanity has been infected with a reluctance to admit we need help. Even when we're suffering, there are times we'd rather grin and bear it than ask for help and be seen as weak. And they refuse to acknowledge that I am in need or hurt or that I'm suffering. To grin and bear it ultimately is telling God, I don't need him. I'll just do it myself. That's essentially being what he calls a practical atheist. Now, I want you to understand, while Job will spend some time there, he does get, in fact, broken. And the truth is, the more we sometimes think we can't be broken, the more God will eventually break us. Job, by the way, will get broken. And in case you don't realize that, I want you to look briefly at Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3, verse 2. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and which the, and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor let shine on it, nor, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let, not, let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day. Job is a broken man by the time we get to Job chapter 3. His suffering is to such an extent, and we, I know we kind of skip past it, but we know, probably most of us know the story, that not only did he lose everything he owned, he lost all those camels and oxen and all those animals he had. Not only did he lose that, he lost all his possessions. He lost every one of his children were killed. And all this happened in just a few moments. In fact, the, chapter 1, he gets, a, he gets a message, you've lost everything. And no more than that guy stopped talking, and the next guy says, and all this was destroyed. That guy gets done talking, and the next one says, all your children are dead. Chapter 2, Job will lose his health to the point that his friends at the end of chapter 2 don't even recognize him anymore. That's how sick he is. And so Job was looking back on all this. Now, maybe you know what it means to be sick to the point that you don't recognize yourself or the person that you know is sick. Maybe you know what it means to lose everything you own or to be bankrupt or to at least be in financial trouble. And some of you perhaps even know what it means to lose a child. And all, all of that happens to Job in a matter of moments and days. Every tragedy that you and I can think of, Job experiences all within a couple days. And Job gets to the point where he says, curse the day I was born. I wish God would forget that day. It would have been better if I had never been born. If Job was around today saying things like that, we would call him suicidal. Job is a broken man. Now, by the way, Job at no point is ever condemned for his emotions. He's never condemned for his depression. He's never condemned for his despair. But I understand Job is a broken man. Sometimes we just determine that God's not there and we just don't handle it ourselves. Another thing that sometimes happens is this. Sometimes we simply turn away from God. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, Job's wife says to, says to him, she says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job, forsake him. Turn around. Don't worship him. Don't love him. Don't, why would you love that God? Go a different direction. This world will tell us to run away from God, run towards other things. We might call this escapism. We might call it idolatry. It can be expressed in any number of ways. And the truth is we can find our comfort, we can find our peace in turning to almost anything other than God Himself. We may seek relief from our circumstances in some other thing, and it may feel for a while that we have, in fact, escaped. But the problem is we'll sober up, we'll come off our high, we'll get done with work, and everything will still be there. Yes, there are the cliche things, perhaps like drugs and alcohol, that some folks will escape to. But the truth is, whether it's a bad relationship, a bad marriage, a bad job, we find ways to deal with things and to distract ourselves. In fact, our culture, perhaps, in more than any other point in time in history, 
excels at this idea of distraction. The truth is, nowadays, we deal with the difficulties of our world by not thinking about our world and finding ways to distract ourselves, whether it be through entertainment, whether it be through some type of chemical or alcohol, or whether it be workaholism. You, you pick a hism, and we found it. And we use it to distract ourselves from our pain and from our suffering. So we, it might be done by working 80 hours a week. It might be done out of a bottle. It might be done by binge-watching 60 hours of a TV show. That's five days worth. Oh, that's, 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 two, that's like three days worth. Man, that's a lot. That's called, by the way, idolatry. Running to something other than God. Giving our adoration and our attention to something other than God. And all these escapes, what we initially thought to be maybe a harmless distraction, will become our God and it will take over our lives. We've invested and run to empty promises. And it makes us feel better for a while, but it didn't last. So sometimes we just grin and bear it. Sometimes we escape and we turn away from God. Sometimes, and this happens in the church a lot, we take this idea that, um, well, God must be doing something to me. Maybe I just need to be better. Maybe I have something in my life I need to fix. Maybe I need to go to more church services, or I need to do more rituals, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. We find comfort in those things. In fact, this, if I was to sum up a good portion of what Job's friends will tell him over the next 20-something chapters, it would be this. Job, you've got a sin problem somewhere. Job, you made a mistake somewhere. Job, you have a, fe- you have a character flaw somewhere. And God's just trying to get your attention. He's disciplining you. And so, Job, fix it. Now, now by the way, sometimes we do suffer because we sin. Sometimes we do endure hardship because God is disciplining us. He's correcting us. Sometimes that does, in fact, happen. But Job's friends will spend 20-something chapters after they spend seven days not talking to him. They make up for it after that. And they tell him, Job, fix your life. Get it right. Be better. Now, by the way, before we get too angry with these friends of ours, understand that a lot of us do the exact same thing. Let me phrase it this way. God, I deserve better than this. God, you've betrayed me. We had a deal. I keep my act clean. I show up to church. I even give in the offering plate from time to time. And you give me a nice, comfortable life. Bad things happen to people out there, not to people like me. We're the good people. I'm a good guy. I'm not supposed to suffer. Every once in a while, we'll talk about something called the prosperity gospel, and we'll rightfully kind of nail it a little bit because people think that if they just trust God, God will give them all the desires of their heart, and God will make you healthy and wealthy and all that stuff. But when every time I say, God, that's not fair. I deserve better. I've fallen into the exact same trap. Maybe I'm not worried about being wealthy, but if I turn to God and say, I shouldn't have to go through this. I'm better than that. You deserve to, you, you should treat me better than this, God. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. And so if I just jump through the hoops, if I just do this or I'll just do that, God will do what I want him to do. One of the results of it, I want to, I want to read for you a passage out of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter has written this letter in the near the end of the New Testament to a group of people who are, in fact, suffering a great deal. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among which you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also with the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice, rejoice with exultation. In some ways, this view of God, that if I just fix it, He'll give me what I want, is actually a very small view of God. It's a God that just turns into a genie. A God that just gives us whatever we ask for as long as we jump through the right hoops or write those right things down or just do this or do that. That's actually a very small God. The truth is, our God has a giant 
universal plan going on that he's been working on from before he even created. We happen to be, for those of us who are in Christ, part of that plan. And God's plans for us are much more than a comfortable, easy life. God's plan for us includes things like becoming Christ-like. It includes things like taking the gospel to the ends of the world. It includes things like making His glory, the glory and majesty of the one who holds the galaxies in His hand, making that glory known. And by the way, that life is hard. The grand plans that God has for us are big. And you and I know that when you try big things, it's hard. And sometimes our God is too small. So sometimes suffering might be that our God is too small, ironically. Some people, maybe they haven't grinned and bear it. Maybe they aren't turning away from God. Maybe they're even not uh, just trying to do better or jump through the hoops or whatever it might be. Maybe they just take a look at God and say, God, you're not sufficient. And that can look at a couple different ways. It, can look, it's, it may look like, um, well, God just isn't strong enough. God can't help. Psalm 73 this is, a, this is one of the Psalms, by the way. This is a Psalm. Psalm 73. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and they are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. God, I don't see you. In fact, God, it looks like you're helping them and not us. I don't see you there. I, I don't think you can do this. Maybe it's not that we don't think God can help. Maybe it is that we don't think He cares. This is, by the way, one thing that Satan told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can't trust Him. He's just looking out for Himself. He doesn't want you to be like Him. You can't trust Him. Adam and Eve, you do what's right in your own eyes, not what is right in God's eyes. You can't trust Him. It's a temptation that goes back to the Garden of Eden. And so these are all things we may do. We may think God can't or won't help us. We may think that we just have to jump through hoops or that God's too small. We may think that we can just do it ourselves. We may turn to other things. Whatever it might be, all these reactions give us a glimpse into what we really believe. Exposes what we really think. Now, as we look at Job here, we're going to see him kind of fall. And I, we don't have time to get to every single passage, but Job chapter 24, Job says that he sees the wicked prosper and that God appears to do nothing. Job chapter 19, Job actually says this, God has wronged me. Job 3, we already saw, God, he curses the day that he was born. His friends kept telling him just to do better and to make it, to, to get right, to fix whatever the problem is. Job says things like this. I'm going to paraphrase, but Job throughout the book says things like this. God, where are you in my pain? Why is this happening? I don't deserve this. Other people are more wicked than I am. Why aren't they hurting? Why is this happening? Why don't you go after them? Now, all that being said, there are other times that Job says this. Naked I was born, naked I'll die. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, God will do what is right. In fact, Job is kind of like us. He's all over the place. One day, Job will be, I know it hurts, but I trust God. The next day is, God, you're unfair. The next day, I know that my Redeemer lives. The next day, God, where in the world are you? And if you've been through a long experience of suffering and pain, you know what it is to one minute be here and to one minute be there. And it seems like you don't spend too much time in the middle. You've got to go back and forth. If it makes you feel any better, Job knows what you're feeling. So did David. So did almost every other. Now, at the end of all this, Job meets God. Job chapter 38, after demanding an audience, and that's kind of what Job does. Job kind of demands an audience. He wants, he wants answers, just like you and I do. Job chapter 38, and again, we don't have time to read all of it, but I want to just... Just read this, Job 38, verse 1. The Lord, answered, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
gird up your loins like a man and I'll ask you and you instruct me. In other words, God says, Job, you want to talk? Let's talk. And the next three, cha- the next, next three chapters, God says, Job, I'll tell you what, you think you're so smart, you think you're de- you, de- you deserve an answer. Let me ask you a few questions. And boy, God just, boom! He toasts Job. Job wanted answers. He wanted to blame somebody. He wanted it fixed. He wanted an explanation. And God said, I'm not going to give you an explanation, but what I will do is I will meet you myself. Now, as intimidating and scary as this must have been for Job, this conversation he has with God, what we find in all of this is this. Job suffers and goes through all this not to find some answer to a question. Not to find some religious or belief system. Not even to get all the answers or to get a program to figure out what to do. Job's suffering brings him to God. Does it bring him to a practice? It doesn't bring him to a, a habit? Does it bring him to a ritual? It brings him to God himself. Job doesn't suffer because he's sinful. He suffers because he's righteous. Look at 42, Job 42. After God has introduced himself to Job in a way that Job could possibly never have imagined before, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with that knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here now, I will speak, I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. By the time Job 42 rolls around, Job was no longer asking for explanations for his suffering He has now met God. And God is enough. That's where Job ends, by the way. Job meets God. And all the suffering that we would associate with with Job and everything that he endured, all all the questions, all the ranting, all the raving, all the advice, all the counsel, all it comes down to at the end is this. Job suffered. And his suffering led him to an encounter with God. And once he met God, once he saw him, Job said, that's good. That he is all I need. Now, just real briefly here, I know we're taking a little bit longer time, but we've got a lot to cover here. As a story... Job does not account for the why of all suffering. It just He simply illustrates for us that suffering may not be what we think it is. That the result of pain is not an explanation or even an understanding or even right beliefs necessarily. It's meeting and knowing God himself. Hebrews chapter 2 I want, to, I, want, I, want, I want to wrap this up this morning by pointing us to, to Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. If you have a chance to turn there, you go ahead and do that. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The author of Hebrews says this. But we do see him, that's Jesus. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, that's appropriate, it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. In other words, it was fitting and appropriate. It was right 
the author of Hebrews says, that Christ in human flesh proved to be of perfect character, that he was sinless, and that he would, through his suffering, bring us to a, por- a part where we also are made perfect with him. Suffering can be the gracious gift of God meant to draw us to a joyful knowledge of God. Suffering is designed not to be a problem in need of an answer, but a pathway to God Himself. To the point that when we look at the cross, what is God doing through the cross? He is engaged in Himself, the Son of God, suffering in His own body so that you and I can do what? Meet the Father face to face. And without the suffering of Christ and without us sharing in His sufferings, we don't get the privilege of meeting God face to face. What am I talking about here? The cross. The cross of Christ. Now for us, here in the year 2020, I almost said 2019, in the year 2020, the cross for many of us is inspirational. We have it on our shelves. We have it on our bookshelves. We have it on our walls. We put gold and silver on it. Where it is jewelry. We even got the pulpit shaped like a cross. It's inspirational for us. But if you were living in Jesus' day, this idea of the cross as jewelry would be mind-boggling. It was nothing more than a horrific, ugly symbol of terror and death. And it was nothing more than that. For you and I, the closest might be to think of what a guillotine, or maybe more accurately, a noose might bring, what the emotions that might bring to us. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a noose up here or uh, wearing a a decorated gold-plated noose as jewelry? That just, no, we wouldn't do that. And yet, that's what the cross is. And yet, God has redeemed this horrific symbol of torture and death and oppression, and He's made it for us today a symbol of grace and mercy and love. Now, that's the power of God's redemption. For, again, most of us, we only know the redeemed idea of the cross. We weren't there in the year 30 A.D. and seeing crosses as a means of Roman oppression and death. God has redeemed it. And so it is with our pain and our enduring of suffering that God in His sovereign wisdom, has deemed it wise and did deem it wise to not stop the cross from happening, but to allow it for the purpose of redemption and grace. And it may well be the same for us in whatever pain that we are enduring, the suffering we are enduring. Could God stop all of our pain? The answer, of course, is yes. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He could do that if He wanted to. But perhaps the pain that we follow will be the same path that the cross was. It will be an act of grace that will bring us face to face with God. It may not be what we think it is. Suffering can be a gracious allowance, perhaps even an act of direct God, direct grace of God that enables us to meet Him and to know Him. Maybe we can come to see it as Scripture does. And one day be able to look at our suffering and use words like thankfulness and privilege. Maybe even the word joy. Ever since Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, suffering, evil, violence, these things have illustrated our need for God and our design to induce within us a desire to be reunited, to, to know Him. The journey that Job is on leads him to a direct relationship with God. Christ's suffering is meant to redeem us and bring us face to face with God. Jesus said, Blessed is the he who mourns, for he will be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe This morning, you're just grinning and bearing it. Maybe you've run to something other than God. Maybe you've just tried to be better, keep more rules. Maybe you've given up hope altogether.
Maybe you've come to see God as unloving or even unable. This morning, as we begin this look at what the Bible has to say, I would invite you to the one who is worth knowing. I would invite you to set aside your supposed strength. I would invite you to set aside your deceitful understanding about who God is. I would invite you to set aside the idols and the distractions, and I would ask you to set aside the rituals. And I would invite you to one whose glory is so weighty, whose majesty is so awe-inspiring, and whose love for you is so extreme that even suffering will be used to get you to him. Because there will be a day like it's said in the scriptures, Paul says, I count all the sufferings of this life to be worth knowing Christ. Our God loves us so greatly that he will use anything to bring us to himself. I know I haven't answered all your questions and I won't even over the next four weeks as we delve into more detail. This was a a flyover, (laughs) an introduction. But I do know this. Whatever suffering, whatever it is that you have that you don't want, whatever it is that you don't have that you do want, none of it holds a candle to God himself. And God may well have you on a path this morning that will lead you to a face-to-face confrontation one day, a face-to-face meeting where his eyes smile at you. And there may well be a day, I think there will be a day, as hard as it may be to understand now, when you will look back on what you're enduring now, and you'll actually be thankful. I don't know how that happens. I, I, I say it, and even in my own mind, that's a struggle. But if I'm taking the word of God seriously, he says that will happen one day. So again, my invitation to you this morning is this. Whether you're going through suffering now or whether you have or whether you will one day get there, I want to invite you this morning to the one who is worth 